0: COVID Conversations, Speaking to History, features the voices of black and brown Floridians talking about their experiences during COVID-19. Producers Shireen Hamade and Jasmine Rich are historians and with this project they aim to amplify voices that have been historically silenced. We're going to hear from Shireen Hamadeh later in the show, but first here are some of the stories about the pandemic that were told to them. We'll start with Alani Briscoe. Alani's a New Orleans native and a father who was forced out of New Orleans by Hurricane Katrina. Alani applied lessons learned from Hurricane Katrina to COVID-19 and looked for silver linings in the pandemic, like spending more time with his daughter.
1: I was affected by Hurricane Katrina. In the process of that, I ended up being evacuated to Houston. Not ashamed to say at that point it was low. I was technically homeless. Um, I lived in a homeless shelter for close to eight weeks. But the good thing is my mind and my spirit was in the right place and I was able to rebuild and put my life back together basically one day at a time. The experience of being forced out of New Orleans into Houston kind of made me see that, you know, things are different outside of your environment. You know, people walk, talk, look different, do different things. And it honestly, it was growth and development for me. I was in a strong mindset to deal with the turmoil, but I was open-minded to embrace other cultures other lifestyles, other foods, other experiences. So I ended up going back to New Orleans. So the Houston scenario probably lasted a year and a half. And then when I got back to New Orleans, of course everything's different. The city's not rebuilt. The politicians are politicking. The corruption is overboard. And it was just it just wasn't the same and the vibe wasn't the same. And then even like the tourists wasn't coming because it, the city was dangerous. Some things wasn't rebuilt. Yes, the French Quarter wasn't heavily affected, but, you know, tourists didn't just wasn't coming at the time. And I just was kind of like, I just came from Houston. Why I didn't stay there? And I'm like, uh, well, why not go somewhere else? You're young, you know, you can experience life and travel. So that's kind of how I was like, well, oh, let's try Florida. Of course, everybody liked the beach and the weather in those type of scenarios. Me, I was thinking more of most people move to Florida to retire. How about I look at Florida for as a potential investment? So I was looking into condos at the time and found one. And I'm all excited. You know, I might have opportunities for investment. Everything went through. And then the market crashed and the housing market bubble popped. So that investment turned in, well, I gotta live there and figure it out because I'm underwater. So that's kind of how I ended up in Tampa. And it it worked out, it's still working out. With Katrina, in the upper Garden District, the French Quarter, the big mansions on St. Charles, they didn't have any flooding. So how does 70, 80% of the city flood, but the side of the city that's affluent and minimal to no minorities live in was the area that was not affected at all. As far as the government and responding to COVID and that affecting you know, the African-American community, I do see parallels. Even though it was, if you fulfill within a certain tax bracket, Everybody got the same from a stimulus check standpoint. So I think that was fair. I do see some positive and some negative out of it because of course it's always going to be conspiracy theory with everything. You know, the negative is so much of the disinformation or the misinformation or how the information was circulated on the social media. From a positive standpoint, I look at it like I could not everybody experience. but I have to speak for myself. It was an opportunity to take a step back and look at what's really going on. It It was an opportunity for me to reflect and say, wait, you went through Katrina, you survived Katrina, you was able to rebuild after Katrina. What lessons did you learn from Katrina that you can apply to this scenario now? So it was almost like, hey, I'm ready for this. And even though... I think the pandemic was awful and it affected some people in an awful manner. I think for me, I was prepared for it because I had, to me, I had already went to the lowest point in life and already experienced it and already survived it and already learned lessons from that. As a parent, it was challenging because my daughter was just starting school, you know, she was excited about it. So she started school early. And, you know, her just being able to go out, be with other kids her age, learn different fundamentals, come home, how was your day, you know, giving her guidance on what you should do in this scenario. It was awesome experience because I'm able to be hands on and then a pandemic hit and now this child is stuck at home all day they attempted to do the remote learning so imagine a four-year-old trying to be in front of a computer for whatever amount of hours that's a challenge in itself and then now the social aspect that she liked or loved or was developing has been taken away from her but also i will always try to look for the positive in something that was able to let me be able for me to give her more time and attention and bonding from a family I think overall in general life, we all have experiences and whether they're positive or negative, you got to always find a silver lining in there. What can I learn from this? What can I apply moving forward? And it's the mindset of controlling what you can control. Some things are totally out of your control. Like Katrina, I had no control of that. Pandemic, I had no control of that. But what I could control is my mindset. You know, what I could control is my actions What I could control is my reactions.
0: Alani Briscoe shared his story of the pandemic with producers Shireen Hamade and Jasmine Rich. Next, we'll hear from Destiny Anglin-Mason. In 2020, she was on the front lines of the pandemic, working in retail as frantic shoppers bought up every roll of toilet paper in sight. And she had to navigate pregnancy and raising a baby in isolation amid the uncertainties of this terrifying new disease.
2: I'm a customer service manager, so I have to deal with, people's complaints and stuff like that so and I also worked in the front end with checking people out so it was very chaotic for us because the company that um I work for huge company and it's like we're trying to deal with the customers trying to figure out what the heck's going on and then the company's trying to figure out what's going on so it was like one week is it mandatory to wear masks is it not mandatory to wear masks are we limiting the amount of toilet paper people can get? Are we, You know what I mean? It was kind of chaos. And then me dealing as a customer service manager, dealing with the complaints from customers. I had some customers, you guys are making people wear masks and you guys are no one's, you know, six feeding and all this stuff. And it's, it was it was for me being in retail in particular was tough. It was really hard. I was pregnant so that was a tough part because you know when it first came out and they were first coming out with like vaccines and stuff I didn't know whether to get the vaccine because you know not to be conspiracy theorists but like they hadn't done enough studies on like pregnant women mostly being pregnant working in retail being around a bunch of people was scary because everyone my gra- my grandmother died from COVID my mother who was her primary caregiver had to like fight to see her traveling you know how Traveling was scary. They live in Miami, and Miami's cases were super spiked. So I almost f- felt scared to go see her before she passed, and I, I regret it. But um, just because the cases were so high, and once again, I was pregnant. So it was like everything for me is elevated risk because I'm having to make sure that my baby doesn't get compromised. My partner is the one who's like, even now to this day, if our baby goes anywhere, he's like, COVID, remember COVID. <laughs> so going to see friends was scary in that regard because he was the one that's very panicky about it. Our gender reveal. You know, we had to make sure it was outside because of COVID. Make sure everyone's trying to stay six feet. We had family members who decided not to come. We had friends who decided not to come just because they were scared of catching COVID. I caught COVID while I was pregnant. I was one of the lucky few that didn't have symptoms. I just got tested because that everybody at work was catching it. So I said, just for you know safety, let me see if I have it, and I had it. To be honest, doctors weren't that caring about it. Like. Even though I was pregnant, and that was a major concern of mine, I kept telling them. I think because I didn't have symptoms, they kind of were like, well, if you were not showing symptoms, then kind of like, oh, well, wait it out. See how you feel in a couple weeks. And I have friends that work in the medical field, and they told me that at the time, like, the hospitals were just flooded. So it was like, if you weren't, you could barely breathe, they kind of just were telling you to wait it out. So that's basically what my doctor said. She was like, hey... If you can't come to the office because you have COVID and um, you're not experiencing symptoms. So wait it out. She was telling me that the baby should be fine. Again, they don't have research to say whether or not. So when I went back after, she checked and everything was fine as far as like his fluid and his development and stuff like that. But she basically told me, wait it out. There's nothing she could do. That was a huge part of my pregnancy was having him during COVID and like not having families be able to visit and family members being able to visit because they had a limitation in the hospital and stuff like that. Having a pandemic baby really just means having a kid in like isolation. The support that you are able to get is just not as much. Like people having to FaceTime you and check on you instead of being able to come over and bring you like a meal or something like that. Or um, just the heightened fear. Cause like when you have a baby, you're already worried about people holding them and kissing them and stuff like that. So it's like extra now because somebody that you, you know, pass on the street or even a family member coming over, they swearing that they haven't been around anybody. And then your kid catches COVID. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's, it's being a parent, which for me personally, I feel like it takes a village to raise a child. I don't believe that, you know, it's just one parent is fine or two parents, whatever. Yeah. Like it's just hard. It's, Raising a child in isolation and then making sure and hoping that they get those social skills that are important. They don't know only mommy and daddy's face, you know.
0: That was Destiny Anglin-Mason reflecting on the pandemic as part of COVID Conversations Speaking to History. It's a Florida Humanities Council funded project produced by WUSF and features the voices of Floridians of color talking about their experiences of the pandemic. You're listening to Florida Matters. When we come back, historian Shireen Hamade talks about sharing the stories of how others lived through COVID-19 and their own experiences of the pandemic. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. COVID Conversations – Speaking to History features the voices of black and brown Floridians talking about their experiences during COVID-19. Producers Shireen Hamade and Jasmine Rich are historians, and with this project they aim to amplify voices that have been historically silenced. The two historians also shared their stories of COVID for the project, and Shireen Hamade joins us now. Thanks for being here.
3: Of course, thanks for having me.
0: When COVID started, you were at grad school, you were also working at a diner. What was it like to have to balance the requirements of a job that puts you in contact with the public on a daily basis and the risks of this deadly disease?
3: It was definitely tough. I feel like working at that diner, I really got a first-hand experience of like the slow creep of the pandemic because I had to go through the negotiations of it myself of do I wear a mask or not wear a mask? And do I not wear a mask and kind of appease my bosses? Or do I wear a mask and keep myself safe? I heard all the conversations going around at the diner too of like, oh, this is fake. Oh, this is never going to reach us, things like that. And Those conversations continued as I knew that like friends up north, all of their stuff was shutting down because this had been in Florida down south. So it was definitely a different environment for that as well. So it was interesting and really harrowing to kind of see that evolution happen. And it was also, I mean, obviously difficult for me because I had to juggle deciding, okay, I have bills to pay, but also... I am actively putting my family in jeopardy by potentially staying here. So it was a delicate balancing act. Uh, Thankfully, I didn't have to make that decision because the restaurant was closed (laughs) because of COVID. So, yeah, I had remembered when they started to have me wiping down menus every hour with Clorox wipes. And at one point, my manager came in with like some money and like called me over and whispered in hushed tones like, oh, I just took this money from someone who's sick. So wipe it down and don't put it in the register. And I'm just standing there like, I don't know if this $15 is really that worth it.
0: And that's probably an experience that came across in some of the interviews with the folks that you talk to, right? Like having to just kind of make these critical decisions and balance out, you know, the needs of keeping, you know, keeping your family fed, keeping food on the table. And, you know, what are these risks associated with COVID? Because there were a lot of unknowns at the start, right?
3: I know one of the people I had interviewed was my grandfather. Um, I don't know if that interview actually made it out onto air, but his story in itself is really interesting because he's been a bus driver for years and years and years. He loves it. It's his whole career. He moved to Florida to retire. He is absolutely restless at all times. So he decided to work again my grandparents watch my baby sister who's six years old while my parents work. So in order to keep the family safe, my mom and my grandmother had kind of sat down with him and were like, do you really need this job? And he quit and he still hasn't gone back to work. So me, I mean, I'm an adult, but I'm younger and I don't have like a whole family to take care of. So it was easier for me not to be working. Whereas for my grandfather, like, that was such a big decision for him, especially knowing how much pride he takes in his work. So, And there's countless stories like that, where it's seeing the kind of mental gymnastics people have to go through to really decide, is this money worth my life?
0: Um, and now the pressure on people who had those frontline essential jobs also came across in the interview that you did with Destiny. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you heard from her and how that story resonated with you.
3: I do know that Jasmine was the one who conducted the interview with Destiny, but from what I had heard from Jasmine and the snippets that I had heard from the interview, that I can't even imagine because Destiny was the one who had been pregnant during the pandemic. I know that what they had discussed is that going through a pregnancy in itself is difficult no matter what the circumstances are, but having to do so through the pandemic and having to figure like all of her doctors were telling her that they had no idea if she got COVID like what that would do to her baby like her unborn baby which is absolutely insane like you not only have to watch out for yourself but your baby but you also have to balance that with but I do have to provide for myself and my baby so yeah it's like how do you make that decision and have there is no right decision in that context so
0: yeah and Disney also talked about raising a child Essentially, in isolation and worrying about the impact of, you know, lack of social contact at such an early age, which is another thing to consider that people who aren't, you know, raising kids or are dealing with pregnancy through all of this didn't have to think about.
3: My baby sister, I feel so bad for her. She's six years old and she had just started school right before the pandemic. I think she was doing pre-K. So. She was just starting to interact with other children her age because she has cousins, but she doesn't see them that often. She was just starting to interact with them and settle into a school environment. And she got pulled away from that. And thankfully, it's almost like she didn't really know what she was missing out on because it was only such a short experience. But she would talk about like how much she misses her friends and how much fun it was to go back and play. But there was another element of... like There was a neighborhood kid who she made friends with over the pandemic who would like visit her through the porch and eventually he was like oh can I come inside and play and she was excited to have him over but then my family was like hey remember we're in a pandemic he can come inside but he needs to wear a mask so she was like she told him you can come inside but you need to wear a mask and he was like we don't wear masks in our family and he ran off which sounds like such a cliche story but like he never spoke to her again even though we would see her in the neighborhood and I could tell like She was very confused by that and like unsure of how to approach him anymore. So, yeah, it's things like that where it's these children are definitely missing out on that important early developmental stage, but they don't even know it. And we're probably going to see some of the effects of that into the future because there's that social negotiation that's continuing to happen.
0: Do you think the pressure on people who had the kind of frontline essential jobs like Destiny, do you think the story of those frontline workers has gotten enough emphasis through the pandemic and even now in 2022?
3: I don't think so. I feel like some people believe that it has because that's definitely been some of the focal points on like news stories. But it's become this weird thing where I feel as though in talking about frontline workers, It becomes very depersonalized where they become like this amorphous blob of like, oh, here are the essential workers that are working hard to keep our our society and our economy going while you're you're able to stay at home. But you don't get any sort of a sense of how these individual people were impacted, how they feel about this. I feel like it got contorted into this weird feel good story of these people are working hard so you could stay home and people felt good about putting signs in their in their front yards about like, thank you, essential workers. But it kind of stopped at that. I feel like no one really got a way to be checked in on unless it was within their own families. Like if it happened to your family, you know what the struggle was, but if you didn't, there's no way of knowing.
0: One of the people that you and Jasmine interviewed for the series, Alani Briscoe, is originally from New Orleans and he was forced out by Hurricane Katrina And Alani talks about how that experience prepared him for the pandemic. And also he describes parallels between the official response to Katrina and the way that authorities responded to COVID. I'm wondering if that's a theme that came across in other interviews with the folks that you talked to for this project too.
3: Yeah. So Alani Briscoe is actually my stepdad. So we had had several conversations about COVID throughout the pandemic and we have different views, but the discussions were always really interesting to hear his point of view. He's talked about his Katrina experience to me before, but never in that way. And part of why I wanted to interview him was because I thought that he would have a really interesting insight. And I think that definitely did show up when I had spoken to Dr. Washington Hill, because I don't think it made it into the final interview, but he also worked on the Ebola response in Africa. So I had asked him a little bit about if he could tell me like what he thought about the media response to Ebola versus how people are handling COVID. It was really interesting because it was all about how these things were portrayed by the media and the gravitas of that and the government response. They both boiled it down to the ways in which communities sort of make up for the lack of response that they were seeing in the government or communities come together to spur and force the hand of local governments to address these issues, because it's not as though the government did nothing, but as Dr. Washington Hill points out, African-American communities in particular were underserved because sure, there was a testing center where you could get what resources you needed, but not in their communities. So how was it that they were supposed to access these resources as people who are the most disproportionately affected by them? And it was the same as what Alani was saying in that, Sure, all of New Orleans and Louisiana was impacted, but you could definitely see how that was different amongst communities of color compared to people who could sort of afford to pick themselves back up.
0: Do you feel like this project has changed the way you view the study of history and in particular, the role of historians?
3: Personally, not at all, only because I've always been such a huge advocate of oral histories as a practice. In everything that I've read, people sort of caution against using oral historical evidence because of how subjective it is, which I think is such a joke, because in studying human history, there is no way to be 100% objective about what you're looking into. And I feel as though oral histories give you an element that you can't really find when you're just like talking to paper, in that you can really see the affective impact of these historical proceedings with people again like to use the news example sure people are talking about these stories about what happened to like essential workers and how that's terrible but you're not really going to get the full breadth of that impact unless you talk to someone who you can hear them breaking down like on mic and it's devastating. Or you can hear them getting impassioned or angry about something that they experience that you can not experience in historical documents. So as a historian, doing interviews like that is extremely important to me. And I was very humbled to be part of this project because I really feel for this as a field. And especially with these stories and how current their impact are, I really, f- yeah, it didn't change my mind because I already felt very strongly about this, which is why I was part of the project in the first place.
0: Do you feel like historians in general or the practice of history is coming around to the way that you and others feel about the importance of oral history? Is like, is that a kind of a changing mindset?
3: Oh, I definitely think so. I think in the 70s is when oral histories were really starting to pop off a lot. And then when you start getting to the aughts is when people were pushing back in regards to subjectivity and things. And I think it's really turned a corner because people are really starting to understand that with all of our digital capabilities now... It's more important than ever that we're able to capture these much more personal and intimate versions of history than we were ever able to before. We're not going to have voice memos of people talking about their plague experience, but we do have people talking about their experience during COVID. And I feel like that's extremely significant in informing how to deal with these things later, because even if your average person isn't going to talk about like, data and facts and numbers regarding how the pandemic impacted them. Hearing about how certain communities are much more outraged because they feel the impact compared to others, I think could definitely color how we respond to this in the future.
0: It's interesting to me too, because what you're describing about the historical approach or the approach to history and this discussion around subjectivity and objectivity and even how you record That kind of mirrors what's been going on in the world of journalism, where there's been this debate about subjectivity, that, you know, there's been the rise of citizen journalists in in recent years. So these two stories seem to be running in parallel.
3: Yeah. The funny part about this project is that um, as a historian, like I kind of alluded to, like, most of the time I'm working with paper. I'm working with very much long dead subjects. <laughs> like I'm not often talking to people. So there's that added element of like knowing that this is going to be in the annals of history. But in kind of playing the role of journalists and developing these questions, you can really see how journalism and history really do kind of fold into one one another. And with oral history, I mean, they're starting to be one of the same.
0: Now, You also noted in your um, conversation as part of this series that you, you talk about your, you, I think you describe it as passively collecting the experiences of your friends is, is that partly because where everybody's experienced in the pandemic, like the scale and the scope of this is so much different from an event that maybe only affects a discrete group of people.
3: Oh, yeah. It went from like coming back from school and being like, how's your summer to coming back from school and being like, oh, I didn't get COVID yet. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that I don't get it now. It's I think because there's so much time between when, quote unquote, the pandemic happened to people and when they're getting to talk about it, that people tend to downplay their own experiences until you give them the space to really discuss and process what's happened to them like even myself when Jasmine when me and Jasmine had talked about interviewing each other because we had interesting stories so I was like okay I don't really know what I'm going to talk about and it's only when she sat me down for my interview that I was like kind of a lot happened to me (laughs) in that time span that I didn't even realize and I didn't even realize I had that much to say about my own experience.
0: Shireen Hamade thanks so much for your time really appreciate the work you've put into this project and it's been great talking with you.
3: Of course. Thanks for having me. And it's been really great to be part of this project and part of the WUSF family.
0: Historian Shireen Hamade is one of the producers for the COVID Conversation Speaking to History project. And you can find out more about the project on our website, WUSFnews.org. That's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at WUSFnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost as our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.